All right, good morning, Redemption. Uh, my name is Josh Butler, one of the pastors here. Hey guys, I'm Brandon Bellerson. I'm our worshiping creative arts pastor. Yes, awesome. <laughs> Dude, and I'm stoked, man. Today we are talking about worship. And so, Brandon, I think many of you have probably seen, Brandon, have seen you on stage, you know, and leading music, and you're an amazing musician. But what many of you may not know is that Brandon also, dude, one of the things I just love and respect and admire about you so much, you have this huge heart beyond just music, beyond just worship, for spiritual formation, for prayer, for shepherding the lives of God's people. And as well as, like, dude, you have... I've learned a ton from you when it comes to worship and even just theological maturity and wisdom and all. And so, yeah, I really wanted us to do this one together so we could dig into worship and understanding worship, right? So we're looking today at why do we worship? And now, we're not necessarily talking this morning about all of life worship, so we believe here that all of life is worship. We talk about that regularly. All of life is all for Jesus. And so, yes and amen. But we wanna look specifically this morning at like our Sunday worship services, worship in the sense of the gathered life of God's people. Because that can be kind of a strange thing, right? Like, I'm thinking if you're new, if this is your first time here and you kind of come into a service, you could be going like, it's kind of weird. Like, first we kind of all do some karaoke for a while to sing along yep. to the music. Yep, yep. You know? We're singing like cheesy, like Justin Bieber type love, love songs, songs that just have Jesus in, you know. <laughs> totally. And after that, like the Einstein looking dude like gets up and gives some, you know, like talk for a little bit. Why are those guys' pants so tight? You yeah, know what, what I mean? Like, like, what's going on? <laughs> totally. And then it's snack time, right? Then we come yep. up for the world's worst snack, like some dry, crusty little bread and a some styrofoam. juice. And <laughs> yeah, you guys know the styrofoam wafer. <laughs> totally. And a little more karaoke to wrap it up, and then and then we're off. You know. And so this could be kind of strange if this is your first time. You know, you're just kind of going, "What exactly is going on?" But even for many of us who've been here, you know, been following Jesus for a long time there can still be like some questions that we have, you know, like why do we gather? Why, you know, if all of life is worship, why, why do we gather and worship together as God's people? Uh, other questions, I think when it comes to music especially, people can kind of go, dude, is this just emotional manipulation or I don't know, what, yeah, you've probably heard some of these oh, questions Oh yeah, I've too. gotten a lot of interesting, fun questions and then even the compliments you hear after service, you hear, oh, that was great worship today. And what I wanna say is, first of all, thank you. And then second of all, like, it's, it's not just a me thing, it's a us thing, it's a participatory yeah, the worship thing. worship so of God's people, Excited totally. to be able to unpack a lot of this. Today. Totally, and I think the things too, like expresses, some people are raising their hands and some people are going, why are some people doing that? What's going on with that? So we just wanna talk today about why we worship and looking at this passage in 2 Samuel 6. So if you have your Bible, if you wanna turn there, we're gonna be in 2 Samuel 6 today. And our passage is all about worship. Uh, in context here, David is bringing the ark into Jerusalem. Uh, last week in our We Want a King series, we saw how David was just established as king. Uh, and now this week, we see that his first priority, his first thing he does, is to center the life of God's people around the presence of God. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was associated with God's presence. It was holy. It was the center of the tabernacle. It would reside in the most holy place, in the tabernacle and the temple. And David is going, dude, we are, my first priority as king is to orient our lives as God's people around the presence of God and what we see in here is a posture of worship amongst God's people. How God's presence, we orient our lives around God's presence in a posture of worship. So our title for the message this morning is Why We Worship. And let's jump in in 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Oh, my kids moved my bookmark. I gotta... 
<laughs> sword drills. Anybody remember sword drills? Bible drills? There we go. Ten, nine. Are we good? Okay. All right. Verse one here. Uh, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. So they're bringing the ark here up from this other town. The ark had been in exile for a while, and now they're bringing the ark up back up to where it's supposed to be here in the city of David in Jerusalem. Verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So the whole house of Israel, the whole nation is gathered, worshiping God with music and singing and celebration. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. Which makes sense, right? Like, dude, he's helping God out. Like the ark is stumbling, he's gonna help God out here. He reaches out, he touches the ark in verse seven. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Whoa. That seems maybe like a bit of an overreaction, God, right? Like, what's happening there? Oh, in verse 9, and uh, I'm sorry, verse 8, and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means broke out against Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. He's like, dude, we got to cancel the party. Everyone go home. And, uh, and, but David took it aside to the house of Abed-Edom, the Gittite. All right, let's stop there. One of the first things we see in this passage is, dude, we want to worship intentionally. Right? We want to worship intentionally. Uh, the issue with Uzzah here is that Uzzah did not worship intentionally. And at first glance, that can seem like an overreaction, right? Like, dude, what the heck? He was trying to help God out. He was reaching out to kind of help stabilize the ark on the car. You're kind of going like, dude, why was that wrong? And what was the penalty? Why was it so severe? You know? But actually, there's a lot more going on in this passage than we may see at first glance. Like, dude, there is... This Uzzah touching the ark is the tip of the iceberg. It's the straw that breaks the camel's back. And there's all this other stuff going on in the first few verses that show they are not treating the presence of God with intentionality. They're not doing it intentionally. So for example, uh, the ark had very specific instructions on how it was to be transported. It was to be carried on poles by the priests. So one of the first things we see here is that they're not carrying it on poles, right? It says that they're bringing it on a cart. And so there's kind of the sense of like, do you just throw it in the back of your trailer right, and carry it along? But you go back into like Numbers 4, Deuteronomy 10, other places, there were very specific instructions and they're not. They're just kind of throwing it in the back of this cart. We also see that Uzzah and Ahio, who are carrying it, it was supposed to be priests who are carrying it, but Uzzah and Ahio are not priests. We find that out more in First Chronicles 15. It kind of unpacks the story from another angle and we read, dude, they were not priests. That was part of the problem. And interestingly, it says that their father is Abinadab, their sons of Abinadab. And in Hebrew, that means Nadab is my father. It's a kind of Bible nerd moment here for a minute. If anyone knows what, who Nadab was, you can win a gold star. But it's a story earlier in Leviticus 10 where it's when the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle is just being established and day one on the job for the priests, Nadab and Abihu, they burn strange fire to the Lord. They're reckless and unintentional with their worship and they get struck down because of it. 
And so you're supposed to hear this echo of like, dude, they're being irreverent, reckless, unintentional in handling the presence of God here. And also with that language that they were struck down, it echoes earlier in 1 Samuel 6 where the people lifted up the ark to look inside, kind of like Indiana Jones and Temple, you know, whatever. Like, and dude, they got struck down. So all that to say, when Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. It's the tip of the iceberg. There were all these regulations that were to be in place to help protect the people from dealing with God inappropriately and to honor and approach God with intentionality and reverence. Now, Brandon, the church has historically seen intentionality in worship as something very important. And uh, one of the key ways that the church has approached this throughout the ages has been with what is known as liturgy. And liturgy, that can sound like a weird churchy word to us. We don't know what that means, but you talk about what is liturgy and how does that relate to like intentionality in worship? Yes, definitely. Thanks, Josh. So liturgy is not a word that you hear every day, right? It's definitely a churchy sounding word. Uh, so it's, it's literal definition. It comes from two Greek words, work and people. Uh, so the definition of liturgy, our working definition here is work of the people. So this is something that a set of worshiping people uh, put together for a service to show reverence, to show intentionality. Maybe another way of defining it would be the structure, rhythms, and habits of a worshiping community. Yeah, so these are the different worship practices uh, that we, when we come together on Sundays, our Sunday gathering, they draw our attention and our affections toward God. And more than just different practices, I'd say, is I think of an old historic church building. Uh, Josh and I were both in L.A. this week, and we were in this beautiful old 100, 200-year church building, which for America is pretty old, right? But there's cathedrals all around the world uh, with high-vaulted ceilings, and these ceilings echo God's sovereignty because God is high up, right? Uh, also, you walk in and your yeah, you attention in, is just yeah. drawn upward to transcendence, to bigness. To yeah, God. even like the resonance and the reverb of the, of the room, like uh, when, when you sing or when you shout, there's this echo. And that almost draws your attention to the wideness and the, the breadth of God as well as like the presence of God, you know what totally. I mean? Totally. I think even like stained glass historically, it's like you're surrounded by the biblical story and you're looking out as that like this window into the world. Yeah, so like the architect of a church building or cathedral, uh, we also like architect our services in such a way uh, to bring about reverence, to be intentional about uh, when God's gathered people come together. Yeah, totally. So it's in, similar to a posture of how the church historically structured their space. Also, the church historically seen significant to structure our time, like kind of our rhythms and how we gather together and all. And, yeah, what, what's that look like here? How yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, we thought it would be appropriate to take some time to cast the vision for what we do here for our liturgy at Redemption Tempe. And one thing that really, this is one thing that really stood out to me as I got here a year and a half ago is a lot of places just kind of do songs and a sermon, and that's what we think church might be uh, for some folks. But what I really admire about Redemption Tempe is we have a history of being really intentional with our worship time and space. Uh, so, uh, like, our gatherings are basically centered around one thing, which is the biblical story, uh, which is, if you've been around Redemption Tempe for any amount of time, you know as uh, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So I figured we could unpack that a little bit just to give us a little bit more context. Totally. So creation. The biblical story starts with creation. How do we start our services every week yes. around that kind of thing? Yeah. So as you notice, uh, Jake did an incredible call to worship uh, today. It just really stirred our hearts and drew our hearts toward God. And that's the purpose uh, of the beginning of our service is a call to worship. Is it orients our heart 
toward God and his story and realizing, notice I said his story there. A lot of the time we can place ourselves uh, at the beginning of the story. And one thing I love that uh, my friend Holly, who leads worship up here with me, she always says that a call to worship is a reminder that worship starts with God and not with us. Totally. So that's just implicit. You know, you may not think about that or whatever, but when you come in, yeah, the the call to worship in the first song, we tell you to make it very God-centered and get raising our attention to who God is and what he's done. Yes, absolutely. His work, his power, his nature, his very goodness, right? Uh, And then from goodness of creation, we move to our second movement, which is the fall. And uh, to kind of fight back uh, of the effects of the fall, uh, the balance of the Christian life is knowing, right, that we start in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. So we are loved by God. We were created to be good, yet we know that the, because of the fallout and the effects of sin uh, is that we were separated from God. Uh, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. And the power in confession is that it's a healthy reorientation towards reality for us, knowing that we are innately loved by God, yet sin separates us from God. And one of my favorite definitions of confession that I see is that it's a reminder that the world is not the way that it should be, uh, the church is not the way that it fully should be, and therefore we are not the way that we, are sh- that we should be. Totally, so we move from creation to the fall, where you got confession, and the second song tend to be more oriented around dude, introspection, bringing our sin, bringing our apathy, bringing the things we've done or left undone before God. And I love even that second song we did this morning was like, God, you're turning over tables in the temple of our hearts and actually calling out our idols. God, we want to re-surrender to you. That's kind of that. One opportunity too, I think, Josh, like one opportunity we have here that is very unique in the context of many churches uh, is that when things happen around the world that grieve the heart of God and grieve our hearts, we actually take an opportunity to lament, which can be cathartic when we all lament the same thing together. It shows that God values even our negative emotions and that we're able to worship him in the midst of those. Totally, so you'll know sometimes when there's like a national tragedy or something very difficult, that lament will be a space within kind of that fall movement. We're acknowledging the tragic effects of the brokenness in our world because of the fall. Yes, absolutely, and from the fall, uh, we move to redemption. Uh, which one of the cool things we did here, we had Michelle and Warren on stage today talking about uh, the ministry of, that Tempe 10 is supporting this, this week. Uh, but essentially, uh, we call this little section in between uh, our spotlight. And what's great about our spotlight is it has to do with mission and how the people of God at Redemption Tempe are partnering with God in his redemption and restoration of all things. So things like that include uh, like different uh, interviews called all of life interviews where uh, we interview people of how they're engaging and uh, creating a culture of worship basically in whatever vocation they may have. Other things like Tempe 10 today. Any other stuff to add to that, Josh? Yeah, totally. Sometimes God's stories, testimonies of how God's gotten a hold redemptively of someone's life. Totally. Yep. Yeah, and then we go into the message, scripture reading and, and the word of God. Yeah. Yep, and that word of God that word of God, yeah, it's preached publicly. Uh, it preached publicly, and as well as we hold reverence from when for when Scripture is read publicly as well. I love that we stand uh, at the reading of Scripture because we believe it's God's word. Totally, and we think about that. It's God's redemptive word spoken into the brokenness of our condition and the brokenness of the fall. And so we gather, we place ourselves as a community under the authority of God's word, and then we seek to instruct and go, what does it look like for us to live uh, lives in response to that? Yeah, God who is redemptively broken into our fallen condition. Yeah, and coming out of redemption then, uh, we land 
on restoration, when, is, when we look toward the day where Jesus makes everything new. And one thing I love about every sermon here is that every sermon's a gospel sermon. Every sermon lands on Jesus and his table and communion, right? And communion has this incredible way of uniting us all as one body of believers uh, by the body and the blood of Jesus at the table. And uh, one of our beliefs here is that communion is not just a commemorative thing. It's not just remembering, but the real presence of Christ is with us uh, as we come to the table. Totally. And so, I mean, I even think like, like David, the ark in the Old Testament was the place that God had identified his presence with. And so the table in the New Testament is the place where Jesus has identified his presence with. And, dude, I think of, um, dude, sometimes people will raise this question. They'll say like, uh, Josh, why don't we do an altar call every week or, you know, why don't we do like a gospel presentation? Like maybe I grew up in a church where that happened every week. Why don't we do that here? And my response is usually, we do do an altar call every week and we do do a gospel presentation every week, right? Because every sermon, you'll notice with our preaching team, every sermon lands on an invitation to the table and an invitation to Jesus. We believe Jesus is truly present with us as his people. As we gather, we believe he is truly present in the elements where a Reformed church, the Reformed tradition would hold that we don't mistressly know how it all happened, but that Jesus has said, I am truly present and giving myself to you. This is my body, this is my blood. I'm giving myself to you as my people. Uh, and Jesus is the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. And so you'll notice every sermon every week every message lands on an invitation to jesus how the message connects to his death and his resurrection and our hope in him and our need for his presence and we come to the table in a posture of worship we're anticipating the feast the wedding feast of the lamb that's coming with jesus as his people and so whether we know it or not implicitly every week we're rehearsing the story together of creation and fall and redemption and restoration. Yep, absolutely. I love, too, that we do more songs after the word has been preached and after we come to the table, as we come to the table. And that's something that we do that's intentional because I believe that there's not a more appropriate response uh, to the work of Jesus than to worship him. Yes. Well, and I want to give a shout out here too, man, for those of you who know Daniel Ziering, when we think about this intentionality with liturgy and our rhythms and our structure, that is really a legacy that Daniel, I don't know if you're, if you're in the service now, but man, something that you have really imparted and Absolutely. built into our life as a people. And so we're so grateful for that. This is some of the why we do that. All right. Well, let's keep going. So we don't want to be an Uza. We, we don't want to worship recklessly or reverently and all. Um, but rather, we want to be intentional. We want to come with reverence. And let's see what happens next in the story that kind of shows what can happen when that happens, right? We come with reverence. Verse 11. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So the presence of God is there. Man, he's, he's getting blessed. He's getting good, good stuff's happening with him. And it was told, King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Abed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David was like, dude, I want, to, I want in on that action. <laughs> I want in on the presence of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Abed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. He's getting down. And David was wearing a linen ephod. That was the priestly garments. And so David is a king who's acting like a priest. And there he's a foreshadowing of Christ, our priest king. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. 
As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So she's judging him. She's, dude, David, why are you getting all crazy like that? Like, what are the neighbors going to think, right? And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Again, he's acting like a priest here, a priest king. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the Lord in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. So a bunch of swag, right? Stuff we all get. Everyone's going home with something. And then all the people departed each to his house. All right. Well, we see here that we want to worship not only intentionally, but also sacrificially. We want to worship sacrificially. We see here that David worshiped sacrificially. Uh, first off, they corrected what they were doing wrong before, right? And First Chronicles 15 actually says another angle on this story, that David goes back and he reads in the law of the Lord and like, oh, we were doing it wrong. Here's how we need to be doing it. And he's intentional and reverent, seeking God through his word. How should we approach this? And so uh, now the Levites are doing it. The priests are carrying the ark um, rather than non-Levites. And it says they bore it. They're carrying it on poles rather than throwing it in the back of someone's truck, right? And every six steps, it says they kill an ox or a fattened animal. Now, this is crazy, all right? So if you want to picture this scene, you can just kind of imagine picture scene. the distance that they're traveling is like 35 miles, right? And so it would be like us right now saying, hey, we're going to stop service, and we're going to go from here to Peoria, right? On foot. We're going to walk. Google Maps this morning told me that would take about 10 hours, right? So, so we're about to all go on a community 10-hour walk, the whole nation, the whole people, right? And as we're going, every time we take six steps, we're gonna slaughter an ox or fatten animal, right? That is crazy. First off, dude, that's gonna yeah. be costly. Yeah, well, that, that seems almost cruel nowadays, but uh, back in the ancient Near East, they're an agricultural society, so that's literally like burning a suitcase full of money every six feet. Totally, man. So they're just like burning money every six steps along the way, and it's sacrificial imagery. Uh, the blood, a sense of atonement, like the presence going before, kind of dealing with the sins of the people. And you can imagine, that's like a bloody sounds trail. Sounds messy. It sounds messy, right? <laughs> a bloody trail. They're, they're getting to Jerusalem just with a trail of blood behind them. And, but it's also like, it's not just like they're killing it and then leaving it. It's providing a feast. Like this sacrificial trailway is actually providing the feast that the whole nation, the whole people are going to feast upon. I just think of Jim and smoked brisket. That's yes. just, a, that's a lot of brisket. <laughs> like, it's like Jim making smoked brisket all the way along the way. We're walking to Peoria. He's got the grill, totally. And David is dancing. He's leaping. He's rejoicing. So he's not only worshiping, it's not like they're worshiping sacrificially with the stuff. He's worshiping sacrificially with his body. He's rejoicing before God, and he is the king. He is the highest office in the land. Uh, man, I think you're saying, dude, this is like Pope Francis doing the Dougie or something, right? You know, like, yep, yep. <laughs> like the highest office in the land who's getting down. And you can yep. understand why McCall is kind of looking down at, dude, you're the head of state. You're the king. What are you doing? And they are going with music and shouting. All the people, there's music and they're shouting and they're celebrating. Together, the people of, nation, the, the, people of the nation are gathered together, the people of God. They're worshiping before the presence of God, and they're worshiping sacrificially. They're worshiping sacrificially. And so a lot of the time, though, when we think of 
dude, we still worship sacrificially in our culture today, right? I think people can think of this and think of like, oh, we gather on Sunday and we worship, we sing, but that's like this weird, unique thing. Why would we do that? But the reality is we all, dude, we worship sacrificially in our culture in all sorts of places, places that you might not expect. So one of those, for example, would be an ASU game. Like if you think of an ASU game, right? And we are like, hands raised, shouting, screaming, we're bringing it all, you know? And uh, you think of like sporting events, it's not just college students, but like other places, every stage of life, like dude, we get into it, we worship, we sacrifice, like we're sacrificially using our bodies and our voices and our everything to like praise what's happened on and to cheer on what's happening. Uh, we raise our hands at sporting events, right? Yeah. Dude, we celebrate you at sporting events. You could Photoshop like a church into that background, it would work perfectly. We're, we're really. <laughs> totally, man. Dude, totally. And we, we celebrate. Like, it's a, man, there's festivity. There's, like, this sense of, like, oh, my gosh, we're here. We get into it together with yep. friends, right? And there's just this picture that we're all in when it comes, right? And so it's not, I, I'm not using that to say that, like, that, that's bad. I'm saying it's yeah, human, right? As humans, we give of ourselves towards yep. things that we love. Yes. We get excited and we worship. We, 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 we have a posture of praise on things we love. Like, you think about... The sports deal, right? Like a tailgate party. We do it sacrificially, right? Like, dude, all week long, you're kind of like calling your friends to make the invites. You're preparing yeah. the meal. You're going out and buying the stuff. Dude, it's sacrifice. We'll plan and prepare all week long. Mm-hmm. It's costly. We'll spend loads of money on tickets and on gear and supplies. It's a celebration. We'll invite our friends, say, hey, come, rejoice yeah. with me. Let's do this together. And I was just, it's not just sporting events, it's all sorts of gatherings where people love something, they're excited about something, they're passionate about something, that this happens. So you think of just concerts. These are pictures of mainstream concerts. So these are not worship services. These are just mainstream Radiohead or whatever, you know, and dude's going, yes, I'm here, you know, I made it. And he's all in. Or you think of, uh, yeah, some more, where, do you, where people are gathered together and they're raising their hands, they're expressing their devotion, their adoration. Their, we, this is not just a quote-unquote church thing. This is a human thing. We all have these liturgies and rhythms in our culture uh, of ways that we approach collectively and gather together around things that we really love. And the point here is this, that you are made to worship. The question is not whether you worship, it's what or who you worship. And when you love someone or something, you go all in, right? We wanna express devotion and share it with others. And as Sure, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we believe God is most worthy of worship. That word worship actually means worth-ship. worth-ship. We're declaring yep. the worthiness of God. And yes. so, Brandon, we, we want to worship sacrificially as a people. Can you talk a bit about, dude, a question that can come up sometimes is like, well, hey, all of life is worship, seven days a week, family, job, vocation, yes and amen. Yes. Um, but sometimes you can be like, well, then why is Sunday worship significant? Why is our worship service together as God's people? Why is that significant if it's just all of life? Yeah, this is, this is a distinction that I think is necessary to make uh, in a culture such as ours because many different places, uh, people will associate uh, worship with sermons and songs or maybe even just music. You know, you kind of have the conversation in the lobby totally. if you've been on stage in a worship band before, like, hey, that was great worship. Totally. What that meant was and great, usually, great music set. Great singing, great yeah. music, yeah. It's, we, it's like you're after a concert and people are like, oh, hey, man, I liked your set, you know what I mean? Totally, so some people think it's just singing and they need to have their vision expanded. Yes, they need to life. expand their vision to an all-of-life vision. But here, I think we tend to maybe 
like emphasize all of life worship, which is yes and amen, our jobs, our families, everything that we do is worship. Yet I think uh, in the emphasis of all of life, we can miss the distinction of the gathering of God's people when we are able to sit under the teaching of God's word, to sing, to pray together, to walk through these liturgical rhythms together. And we know that this is a false dichotomy, right? It's a both and. All of life is worship as well as the gathered people of God truly matters. Well, I know. I've got to confess. I've had that posture at times in my walk with Christ where I've kind of thought, man, well, I'm worshiping all my life, but then can have a reductionistic vision of Sunday, and as you're saying, no, our gathered life, it's, it's both end, it's not either or. Yes. So talk about both end, like why, 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 why Sunday? Yeah, well, I would actually make the argument that uh, our worship on Sundays and the gathered people of God is meant to fuel and spur on our worship in all of life. That what we do here now is a training to where we can be missional and be sent out uh, to worship, to evangelize, to give God the glory in the rest of our lives, whether it's family life, vocations, et cetera. Totally. I wonder if that's what's going on where it seems like throughout the Bible, God is ordaining like these gatherings of God's people throughout the Old Testament, the festivals, the temple worship, the regular coming together and gathering. And then in the New Testament, that continues. And there's an emphasis on gathering together and singing and hymns and praise and on. So God cares about that. What you're saying is one of the reasons God cares about corporate worship is that it trains and orients us for all of life worship. Yes, absolutely. The best metaphor that I can think of for it Uh, is in marriage. Uh, I'm called to love my wife, right? If you're a spouse in the room, you are called to love your spouse with no exceptions to that rule, right? And there are different ways that we can love our spouse, that I can love my wife, and many of those ways look like I make her food, I do the dishes, uh, I clean the house so she can just hang out, whatever. Uh, But I would make a distinction. Uh, I'm able to love my wife through all of those things. That's very true. All week long. Yeah, all week long, doing the dishes, all those different chores that we may not get a whole lot out of, but we know that we're loving her or loving them uh, by it. But I would make a distinction between doing the dishes and taking my wife out on a date night. I love my wife by doing the dishes, but I love my wife and I'm cultivating intimacy with her and cultivating our relationships so that we're able to do all the other things that help me to love her by cultivating that time with her. That's awesome. I love that analogy. The, the two go together. They fuel one another. And, uh, and if all I'm doing is the dishes and all week long, but I never cultivate that intimacy, yep. like it can put a strain on the relationship or get weird, you know? And I, this, I feel like, speaks to a question that comes up sometimes is like, uh, Jesus is my boyfriend music, right? I don't know if you heard that, but yep. I had a friend who kind of became a Christian. And they're like, yeah, I love God. I'm so excited. But sometimes like, it feels like we're singing songs. It feels like Jesus is my boyfriend music. Like somebody took a Katy Perry pop ballad and just put like Jesus in the place of the guy. Yeah, or there's right? a youth group game called Hillsong or Love Song. And it's actually, <laughs> it, it's pretty difficult. Like it's hard to distinguish between the two a lot of the time. <laughs> totally, <laughs> totally. And, and so I, you know, I was kind of like, yeah, well, I'm curious, why is that an issue? And she says, well, it feels like it undermines just the transcendence and the bigness of God. And my response was going, hey, I get it. And I get that sometimes there can be some songs, or maybe the lyrics can be a little cheesy or overdone. But the reality is this, Christ is not our boyfriend, he's our husband, right? That the yeah. biblical image is that we are the bride of Christ, not just individually, yes. but collectively together. We are corporately the bride of Christ. And so as we gather to worship, like we are actually, it is a, Appropriate, the scandal of intimacy in the gospel, 
that the transcendent God has drawn near, has drawn close. One of the things that's fascinating, and you know, I'm working on this new book and whatever on sex and sexuality and marriage and so on. One of the things fascinating in the biblical story is that it's constantly used as this image for the relationship that we are made for with God, that God has drawn close to be in union with us as his people. And so as we gather on Sunday, we are the bride of Christ cultivating that intimacy and expressing our adoration and devotion with Christ our King. We are the children of God coming to be with our Father and our declare our dependence on Him as our Heavenly Father and with yeah. Him. And so it's appropriate that there would be affection and intimacy and dependence and surrender and all of those themes. Yeah, and not only worship. does uh, it draw us close to God when we come together, but it actually draws us closer to each other. Uh, if I could unpack a, a scientific concept for you guys with my C-plus in biology freshman year grade. Uh, no, uh, there's this Christianity Today article that was recently released uh, from theologian, da theologian David Taylor, uh, and he wrote, the title of the article is Hymns and Neurons, How Worship Rewires Our Brains and Bonds Us Together. And in the article, Taylor unpacks this thing called interactional synchrony. Interactional synchrony. Anyone know Big what word. that means? I, I didn't no. until yeah. this week. But what interactional <laughs> synchrony is, is it essentially draws specific attention to what occurs when people mirror each other's movements, both bodily and vocal. And uh, the, the studies show essentially that experiences of singing and worship create a surge of endorphins in our brains that release oxytocin uh, that heightens this sense, what's called a fellow feeling. And what this results in is a deepening of social bonds, a loss of self-protective boundaries, and an increased sense of feeling felt by one another, which is basically to say when we sing together, uh, it increases our empathy toward one another, which in a divided world, what a witness it is to be able to come together and worship and see that God biologically designed worship to not only draw us closer to him in his heart, but to each other. And there are even studies with that, that when we sing all together with the same beat backbeat, that our heartbeats sync up as well. What a testament. That's so crazy. So what you're saying is, man, when God ordained like gathering of his people, it wasn't just for no reason. Like there's an intentionality. It's wired into the structure of our creation. He Absolutely. actually wants to wire us together. Like our, our brains, our neurology, our physiology, our other things, our, our body, like we're actually connecting and being formed as a community, as his people who do those things. That's powerful. Well, let, let's, uh, let's keep going and see finally, the final stage of this passage, verse 20. Um, want to look at one more piece here. So let's start in verse 20. We read, and David returned to bless his household. So he's just blessed the whole nation with all the swag, right? And now he's coming to bless his household, his own home. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants and female servants as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So she's going like, dude, you should be ashamed of yourself. What are the neighbors going to think with you as king out there just boogieing down, right? And 21, and David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. David's going, dude, I'm worshiping before an audience of one. Like, I'm focused on God. And he says, I will make myself yet more contemptible in this. You thought that was something. You ain't seen nothing yet, right? And I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I should be held on in honor. Those people you thought were gonna look down, they're actually gonna look up to see people worshiping God full-heartedly. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Well, here what we see is that we wanna worship not only intentionally and not only sacrificially, we also wanna worship passionately. 
here. Davis, give us a window here into passionate worship. And McCall, her issue is that she is critiquing David's passionate worship. He's worshiping full throttle, like dancing before the Lord, uh, but she looks down on him and says, hey, that's undignified. You're disgracing yourself. You're getting so publicly worked up and excited about God that that just doesn't look, look good, look right, right? And she's concerned of what others will think. She's talking about how you look in the eyes of others. Like she, and she accuses him, just like, oh, you're just trying to show off and impress. It says she despised him in her heart. Like her outward contempt is rooted in an inward attitude, right, of cynicism and judgy judgmentalism, right? And it says at the end, she had no child to the day of her death. Now, clarity here, that what that is not saying is that if you're struggling, you know, infertility is a very painful thing that many people struggle with. It's not saying that if that's part of your story, that's because you did something wrong. We see throughout the Bible, we see many stories, uh, infertility, uh, where people are struggling with the pain of that thing, and uh, with the pain of that experience, and yet they are held up as righteous before God and godly. And so we know in the biblical story, that's not what's going on here, right? Uh, but what I do think it's, it's suggesting, why does the author include that? I think it's suggesting something more symbolic and big picture, which is this, that if you and I, if we harbor a cynical and judgmental posture towards the presence of God, it will result in an unfruitfulness in our lives, right? I think the goal of the presence of God, the Spirit of God, he wants to bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when we have a cynical or judgmental posture towards the presence of God, it can lead to that, that us not bearing that kind of fruit in our lives. And similarly here, David, though, his response, while well, McCall can be kind of cynical or judgy, David's response is, man, I'm going to get even more undignified than this, right? Like, even more passionate and crazy. Like, you haven't seen anything yet. And he says, like, I'm worshiping for an audience of one, like, before the Lord. Like, he's the one that I'm gathered here with God's people today to adore and to lift up. And how, why is David worshiping so strongly? Well, he's looking back on his story and remembering what God has done for him. Yeah. He says, man, I'm looking at what God's done in my life, how he brought me out of being a shepherd, brought me to this place. And when you see what God's done in your life, you can't help but want to celebrate. And it's interesting, he's dancing, he's leaping, he's shouting. David is using his whole body, not just his heart, but his voice, not just his voice, but his body. He's loving the Lord of his God with all his heart, his soul, and mind, and strength here. And what we see here is that it's right to celebrate passionately. It's right to worship fully before an audience of one, regardless of what people around you might think. And this makes me think, this would be a good spot to talk about worship postures, right? Because sometimes, man, this is one of those things where some, sometimes people make fun of different worship postures, right? Like I've seen these, you've seen oh, yeah. these. Should we, uh, should we uh, display it? Yeah, totally, okay, so uh, let's see, we've got the, what, what do we got? We got the carry, carrying the TV, right? All right. <laughs> Now, how about we make it a widescreen? Awesome. Okay, sweet. And then let's see. We, we've also got the uh, uh, hold my baby. <laughs> but now let's take it and make it a Mufasa, right? The Mufasa, right? All right. And what about touchdown? You're gonna show Rocky, yeah, Rocky and touchdown, right? Now, now those are those are funny as a joke, right? It's it's funny, it's humorous, and dude, we can poke fun at ourselves. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Um, but I do think there's a danger at times that we can actually have that kind of posture towards postures. That's not just yeah. a joke, but it's actually being like a McCall, right? It's kind of a cynical and judgmental. You're just carrying the carrying the TV or whatever, giving the baby. You know, like like we can have kind of that judgmental, cynical posture, and yet. Dude, there's something really powerful that we see yes. throughout the biblical story 
in terms of posturing not only our hearts and our words, but our bodies in worship. And so, dude, we have a culture here. Let's talk about like expressiveness in worship because yeah. we have a culture here where we um, believe there's no one right way to worship and we never want to create a culture where people feel pressured or whatever to do something weird or uncomfortable. But I think for some people, uh, there might not be, you kind of see people who are raising their hands doing, and you're going, what are they doing? That seems weird. Yes. If you're new, kind of, you know, figuring that out. Or maybe, I think for many of us too, maybe we've been in church for a long time but never really heard kind of some teaching or some explanation of like what that might represent or why that might be something you might want to consider. So there's no pressure, but why might someone want to consider that? Yes, and I th- I've found with, uh, with expressiveness or posture in worship, there's two camps. Uh, one camp, it's a little bit easier for those of us uh, who might it come more naturally for. And then another camp, it might not come as naturally. And uh, it almost, you almost could sneak into cynicism because you're either concern, overly concerned with other people, how they view you, or you're looking around and you're seeing people and questioning their motives. And we just want to unpack three different reasons of why, uh, whether you're in one camp or the other or a little bit of both. Uh, yeah, so want, if it's natural to you, just yeah, do it. That's great. But if, if yeah. not, like here's maybe some ways to think about either what others are doing or why yeah. we might want to consider it. Yeah, and maybe something that a few of you might find a bit of, of a surprise is that I find myself a little bit in that uh, prone to cynicism camp. So these are just three reasons why. You're the worship leader, dude. Yeah, I, mean, I know, yeah, right? Totally. shouldn't admit that. No, but <laughs> no you should. That's these true. are just three reasons why to be physically expressive in worship. So the first reason is probably the reason all we really need, but it's all throughout Scripture. Like it's many, many countless examples throughout Scripture of people engaging in worship and prayer with their physical bodies. Uh, Psalm 88, every day I call upon you, Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Uh, that's like calling upon God, right? Uh, in holiness, uh, example from 1 Timothy 2 is, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Cool. So you're saying, man, we see all throughout the Psalms, the worship book yep. of God's people. We see all throughout scripture, key leaders, figures. And some of what you mentioned, a few examples there where in one place it's, it's uh, associated with calling upon God with your body. Another place is associated with holiness, yes. like lifting holy hands. Other places we see it associated with things like surrender. God, I'm surrendering. It's a yep. posture of surrender. Other places, a posture of dependence, like God, I need you. Uh, other times, it's a posture of blessing. God, I'm blessing your name and who you are, yes. giving you glory with my words and with my body. So, yeah, so something we see in Scripture. Yeah, Scripture gives us that framework, right? And then number two, along with it's all throughout Scripture, is that we are whole beings. And we've already been over this, and we know this, that all of life is all for Jesus. But I think a lot of us buy into that lie of Gnosticism, right? That the spiritual is over here and that's important. And then the physical is over here and it's not as important. So for uh, Gnosticism, those unfamiliar, Gnosticism was an ancient heresy that just said, hey, kind of your spirit is what matters, but your body, ah, it's, it's, it's going to get tossed at the end and whatever is a yes. false teaching, heresy, yeah. But yeah, so when, we are only, body. when we're only worshiping God cerebrally, and not, you know, physically, or maybe we're just thinking about the words and not singing them, we are by in turn separating ourselves a little bit. And we're buying into that lie that, oh, like, I'll just worship God in one way and not the other. But God designed us in such a way, down to the scientific molecular level, right, that we are mental, physical, and spiritual beings. That's all part of the equation. Cool. So our bodies, man, it's a way of loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And do we believe all of life is all for Jesus? That includes our bodies. And so we want to worship with our heart yes. and our voices and our bodies and our lives throughout the week. Yes, so we have it's all throughout Scripture. We are whole beings. And then this third reason is that physical signs of surrender are not actually contingent upon our emotions or our feelings. 
And uh, emotions make really great servants and indicators as to how we're feeling, and we can worship God with those emotions, but they make pretty terrible masters. Yeah, so a lot of the, the one question that I think comes up a lot, Josh, is, oh, is worship just emotional manipulation? Like totally, the three you get three songs and, yeah. and the lighting at the right place, or yeah, yep. the three chords, the lighting at the right place, it all, and like, oh, it's going to spark this emotion. Yep. Totally, yeah, how would you respond to that? Oh, man, I, well, I would say, if anything, first, manipulation is all about the motive in general, and let me just affirm, like, our leadership here is incredible. And the only thing we want you guys to get out of this is that the Holy Spirit would form you, that God would minister to you, and that you would leave, you would leave our gatherings with a bigger, greater picture of God, Jesus, and his work, and that it would fuel us to live all of life all for Jesus. Totally. And yeah. what I would say, you know, I'm that, man, is this just emotional manipulation? We'll go, man, we believe the emotions, our emotions and our bodies are sacred to God. And so I, I think Tyler Johnson, uh, pastor here at Redemption, he asked me once, he's like, why do you think it is that um, it seems like every time there's renewal or just a move of a God and all, it always seems to be associated with worship, you know? And I was like, oh, dude, easy. It's because, dude, we were made to worship. I think when we cultivate a space where the bride of Christ can express her devotion and affection to Christ, our groom, it unlocks us. You know, When we create a space where children of God can lay their hearts out in dependence before God as Father, it unlocks that. And so rather than manipulation, I'd say, no, like we believe that all of life, we want to create spaces for us to worship God, not just with our brain, but with our heart and with our bodies, with our lives. We are a Reformed church. Uh, and so, dude, I actually think if you know Reformed theology, I actually think we should be the best in the yes. world at this, right? Because what central to Reformed theology has been that we are not just brains on a stick, right? That we are not just intellectual, mental, cerebral creatures, that ultimately we are creatures of the heart, that we are driven most by what we love, by our affections. That is at the heart of the Reformed tradition is how we operate, and that God is most worthy of our affection and our love and our adoration. And so rather than emotional manipulation going, no, it's creating space for emotional adoration of actually being who God has created and designed us to be together, gathered as his people. And at first glance, right, many people might think that hey, in worship, if you're feeling it, that's when you lift your hands. Uh, but if I could pastor you in this moment, uh, I would actually say that when you're not feeling it is a much better reason to lift your hands. Uh, and just the fact that when we, when we mirror what we're supposed to do, like it starts in scripture, right? When we lift our hands, uh, even if our hearts aren't quite there, I think the, in that obedience, God forms us and honors that. And not always, but most often, if you lift your hands first, God will do the work in your heart and your heart might get there, you know. Totally. Sometimes it won't, but a lot of the time it will. Yeah, I've often found, I didn't used to do this, but then years ago I started just going, hey, you know, I'm gonna start there. Like, I'm gonna start posturing my body in a posture of worship, even when my emotions aren't quite there yet. And what I found is often my body is reminding my heart, yes. you know, kind of like exercise. It's like, yeah, I don't feel like exercising, but then when I go through it with my body, I do the actions, then I, oh man, I feel so good, I love it. You know, like, like sometimes like doing the actions with your body can remind your heart of what is most valuable. Yeah, and I think the reason why we would want to maybe challenge you today to, to just take that next step in worshiping expressively and passionately is because it's yet another way to be joyfully defiant of the circumstances that you might find yourselves in. Uh, I think of uh, certain people, you know, they might come in, life's going great, blessed be the name of the Lord, you know, everything's going awesome for me, I got the promotion at work, all that. Hey, great, great reason to worship Jesus. Uh, but I would say it's even greater testament to worship Jesus and lift your hands 
uh, when you're laid off or when you are sitting in the car having yet another anxiety attack and you barely made it to church. Uh, being able to hold out, even if, even if it's not loud and proud and even if it's simply a posture to receive like this and say, Jesus, this is literally all I have. You're the, you're, you know, you're the widow giving her half penny or whatever. Jesus, this is all I have. Please do with this what you, you're worshiping sacrificially there because you don't even have a lot to give, yet you're following the commands, you're following the example of Jesus in scripture, and you're holding out your hands and saying, here I am, Lord, here this is. Totally, what better time to lay it all before God, declare dependence on you, Jesus, than when it's hurting and it's hard and yeah. maybe not. Yeah, totally. Well, as we come to worship day, man, first off, I just want to say thank you, Brandon, for your leadership here in our community, brother. Like, it's, it's a privilege to be up here with this guy. <laughs> well, dude, I'm so grateful for you and just the ways that, like David, you know, that, that you lead us as the people of God in many ways in your own worship and adoration of, of Jesus. Um, and similarly, I believe we see Jesus, uh, we see David here in this story, this passage we're in, as a picture of Jesus. Jesus is our worship leader, right? As we come to the table this morning with the bread and the wine, we're coming to Christ, our worship leader. That what David's doing in this passage, what Brandon's doing, all, all ultimately seeking to be a window into Jesus, our great worship leader. Because Jesus is the king, like David, who ushers in the presence of God to the center of the life of his people. Jesus is the one who brings us before not an Ark of the Covenant anymore, but the covenant that he made with his blood, right? The bread broken, the wine given, the fruit of the grape. Like Jesus says, this is a sign of my covenant made with you, my presence at the center of your life as my people. And so this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, this table is for you. And you're invited to come to this table to receive from Christ where it just looks like, man, bread and a cracker, like that just looks like the Ark of the Covenant in a box, but actually going, no, God has identified his presence with us as his people. And we wanna come, not to again, like, oh, that was a neat message. Actually, we wanna come to Jesus this morning in a posture of worship, anticipating the great restoration, wedding feast yes. to come. I wanna invite you to come this morning that we would worship intentionally, that we would worship passionately, we would worship sacrificially, uh, in all of our lives, that this would be a training ground for the rest of the week of worshiping God with all that we've got. So would you join me in prayer? Jesus, you are our worship leader. God, we thank you that you, as our great high priest, Lord, that in your divinity, Lord, this mystery that you are the God we worship. And yet in your humanity, you are our worship leader who ushers us into the very presence of God. God, thank you like that trail of blood from the oxes on the, the way to Jerusalem, God. It's your blood shed that has paved the way for us to be in your presence. And so we come to the table this morning in a posture of reverence, Lord, with intentionality before who you are and what you've done. God, and we wanna come with a posture of sacrifice, God, that you who sacrificed yourself for us, Jesus, we now worship and lift you up in the sacrifices of our praises as your people and lives lived in worship of you as our king. And God, we wanna worship you passionately, God, with all that we've got. Like David, shouting and dancing for the Lord, God, we wanna bring our voices to you. We wanna worship you not just with our hearts, 
but with our voices. And God, we want to worship you not just with our voices, but with our bodies. And God, not just with our bodies, but our lives. I just think one of our mottos here, Jesus, has been, we take God seriously and not ourselves. And we see Uzzah, who didn't take you seriously. And we see McCall, who took herself too seriously, God. But we want to come before you, rather, and take you seriously, God, with intentionality and reverence. But in your presence, no, we don't have to take ourselves seriously. We can be like David and just free to rejoice before you. And so we come this morning in a posture of worship and celebration and praise. Jesus, it's in your name and for your glory that we pray. Amen.